Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. I'll, I'll again be reading verses 42 through 52, which recount the response to Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch. But we're going to be focusing this morning just on verse 48, which tells us that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray together. O Lord God, you alone know if dry bones can live. But whenever your breath blows upon the dead, you cause flesh and skin and life to spring forth. So now, living God, fill this place with the sound of rattling bones as you bring the dead to life. Blow, Holy Spirit, and work faith in us for the first time or the ten thousandth. Cause us to hear and believe and rejoice that Christ died so that we might live, was raised so that we might stand in grace, and ascended to reign so that we might live in Him, our King. We ask this as His people, bought by His blood. Amen. Acts 13, picking up in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Yeah, we got some flowers to deal with today, don't we? All right, just come on and slide around. There you go. Uh, have you guys ever built a fort in the woods to play in? Nobody? Yeah, you have, Lily. Okay. Uh, how did you start? What did you use? Sticks. Yeah. Um, so, so it sort of sounds like, though, if you started with sticks, maybe pencil and paper and planning weren't really a part of it. No, you just kind of went for it. And whatever branches were nearby, right, that's, that's what you used. Well, that's a great strategy, honestly, for building a fort in the woods. But do you guys remember this? 
we, we've been putting this together, uh, this, this little structure. We've been putting this together for a while now. And, and this reminds us of the church that Jesus said he himself would build, right? Uh, these boards that are joined together in, into one strong structure reminds us that Jesus is bringing together all kinds of people, and he is putting us together in his one people called the church. And, and like a master builder, Jesus is not just going to wait and see who believes in him and then build with whoever comes. No, he, he's not like us when we just build a fort in the woods. Jesus planned out every stone, every board, every nail. He planned it even before the world was created. He knows every person that he plans to save. And even now, his Holy Spirit is gathering all of us together so that Jesus can save us and he can fit us together into his church. Jesus had to do it that way. He had to plan it all because if he waited to see who came to him, if Jesus waited to see who would believe in him, who would trust in him, before he started building, then do you know what would have happened? It, it, do you know how many people would come to Jesus if he didn't plan it all and bring us in by his spirit? Do you know how many? None at all. You, you see, some people think that sin has made us kind of like little kids learning how to walk. You, you know how toddlers toddle? They think God saving us is like a parent helping a kid learn how to walk. They think, yeah, we need God to hold our hands and keep us steady, but we'll learn how to walk and follow him on our own soon enough if he helps us just a little bit. But Martin Luther described uh, the way sin has left us quite differently. And the passage that we are going to focus on today supports what he's saying. He says, we are not like toddlers learning how to walk, but rather like caterpillars surrounded by a ring of fire. We might be crawling around in circles, but we're done for. We're already dead. Unless, unless someone reaches down and pulls us to safety. The gospel tells us that Jesus is that someone pulling us to safety. And he can do that because he himself went through the fire of God's judgment in our place. And he did that so that he'd have every person that he planned to include in his church. Now, honestly, guys, I have no idea why he chose me or you or anybody. It, it certainly be, was not because there was anything good or worthy in me. But because Jesus does not just offer salvation to people, but he actually saves sinners like us. That's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to... Acts chapter 13. As Sam said, we are focusing in on one verse in this passage that uh, recounts the response to Paul's sermon in Pisidian uh, Antioch. We're, we're focusing in there on verse 48 and really just the last phrase of verse 48. 
This idea that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We're we're, we're focusing on this uh, phrase because it sets forth the doctrine of God's effectual calling of the elect. And that is a doctrine that that many of us find difficult to, to understand and to receive as good news. Now, I want you to know up front, I I have no illusions of being able to answer all of your questions or all of your objections this morning. I I have my own questions, actually, questions that I, I can't answer for myself. But what I want to do this morning is I want to help us to to begin to at least respond to those objections so that we can begin to hear this doctrine, not as a problem, but as good news. Because that's really what it is. This this is the gospel, that God not only makes salvation available, but that he saves sinners. And that's what I want us to hear this morning. And so I'm going to answer, or at least reply, to to some of the more common objections that that rise up in our hearts when we we hear this doctrine. And I'm going to try to help you to see uh, the beauty of this doctrine, so that, so that when we hear it, we might, we might not object, but rather rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord, even as we see uh, the Gentiles doing here. So let's, let's begin. Let's, let's begin with what we see. Luke writes, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As I say, that, that last phrase there, it, it sets forth this doctrine, the doctrine of God's effectual calling, his, his effective calling, that when he calls, people respond. It sets forth this idea of God's effectual calling of his elect, of those who had been appointed to eternal life. And so uh, we see both things there. We see first that, that, that God has appointed some to eternal life. That's election, and it's, and it's clearly stated here. Those who believed the gospel when Paul preached it were those who had been appointed appointed to eternal life. And of course it teaches us not only that some have been elected or that some have been appointed, but it also teaches us uh, that those whom God has appointed have been appointed effectually. They have been called powerfully. God calls to faith those whom he chooses to save. And that is what we mean when we say there is an effectual calling, an effective calling of the elect. Those whom God has chosen to save, when they hear the good news of the gospel, they believe it and receive eternal life. And the truth is that we find this doctrine hard to accept for For several reasons. We we find it hard to to hear this as good news. First, because because it strikes us as unfair. We may recognize that fairness does not always guarantee equal outcomes. We're we're aware of that. We're we're aware that that, that, uh, equality at the finish line is not always the result of fairness. But we we believe that, that equal opportunity is of the essence of fairness. If there's not equal opportunity, then then the situation is not fair. If everyone doesn't have the same opportunity, then then somehow justice has been compromised, whether it's the the context of sports or or business or, or politics. Whatever the context, we believe that there has to be equal opportunity. If one player or one team or, or, or one person has, has a distinct advantage that the others don't enjoy, then 
It's not fair. It's why we prohibit uh, insider trading. Someone who, who is privy to, to private information can't use that information to gain an advantage in the market because it's not fair. Fairness demands that everyone have the same opportunity. The, the playing field, whatever the context, should be level. But that doesn't seem to be the case when God chooses to save some and not others. And so that's, that's our first objection, that it's not fair. The second objection that, that rises up in our hearts is the objection that it's, that it's not loving. If God is able to appoint some to eternal life, how can it be loving for him not to appoint all to eternal life? Again, we, we, we recognize that when resources are limited, a loving person may have to make hard choices. If you are a, a finite being, such as we all are, uh, sometimes we, we cannot equally spread our, spread our love to, to all who would benefit. We, we have to make choices. But God is not a finite being. God is not like us. He is the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. He doesn't have limited resources. And so again, the, the, the objection rises up in our hearts. How can it be loving for the all-powerful, almighty God to appoint some to eternal life and not others? And so this is our second objection, that it's not loving. The third objection is that it's dehumanizing. If God appoints some to eternal life, and if those who are, are so appointed inevitably necessarily believe, then it seems that God has uh, reduced people to, to little more than automatons or, or puppets. He's the one pulling the strings. People no longer have any real agency. They no longer have any real freedom or, or, or choice. And it would seem that, that election so conceived is incompatible with our humanity. It's, it's incompatible with our, our dignity as image bearers of God. Uh, it seems that, that choice or agency is essential to that dignity. And if God takes that away, is he not reducing us to less than humans? So this is our third objection. It seems that... that Election and effectual calling are dehumanizing. They're unfair, they're unloving, and they're contrary to our dignity as human beings created in the image of God. Now, you may have other objections. You may have other questions. But it seems to me that these, these are the principal objections that, that people raise. These are the, the principal questions that, that people have when confronted with this doctrine of effectual calling. As I said, I, I cannot answer each of these objections in the, in the sense of providing a fully satisfactory rebuttal, or at least not one that would be convincing to everyone. But I'm going to try to address each one, again, with the goal of helping us to, to hear this doctrine of effectual calling as good news. And so let's start with that, that first complaint. The, the first complaint is simply that it is unfair. It's unfair because it, it denies equal opportunity. So how do, we, how do we answer this? How do we, how do we respond to the idea that God has, has denied equal opportunity to his creatures? Well, I think we can begin by addressing this concern by, by looking again at Christ's death upon the cross. 
We, we say that Christ's death is effectual for the elect, and that is exactly right. Christ came into the world to save his people from their sins. He, he came to, to, to save his church. He came to, to save his sheep. Scripture uh, repeatedly says such things. But what we need to understand is that when Christ offers himself up as a, as a sacrifice of satisfaction... We need to understand that while that sacrifice is, uh, is designed for and is, and is effectual for the elect, it is a sacrifice that is sufficient for all. Efficient, effective for the elect, but sufficient for all. And what does that mean? It means that whosoever believes will be saved, just as the scriptures say. John says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and if your understanding of election is incompatible with that verse, then it's your, your understanding of election that is wrong. Christ's death is sufficient for all. It is, it is sufficient that whosoever believes will be saved. And what that means is that, that no one who calls upon the name of the Lord will ever be put to shame. It is not the case that some will hear the good news about Jesus and that they will receive it with joy and that they will believe it and they will receive and, and rest upon him for their salvation, but then they will not be saved because they're not elect. And it's, again, vital that we understand this so that we do not have this caricature of election in our minds. No one ever believes but is rejected because they were not chosen. That's what we sometimes think. In our, in our mind's eye, it's like this scene that I saw in the movie Cinderella. Man, if you don't ever seen that movie, but it's about a, a boxer during the Depression era. And in the movie, uh, the, this boxer's trying to make ends meet. He's trying to, to feed his family. And so with all the other men in the city, he shows up at the docks early in the morning. And, and all these men are gathered there at the docks hoping that they will get work for the day. Because if they get work for the day, they'll get to eat that day, and their children will get to eat that day. And so they gather at the docks, and they're, they're scrambling around. They're trying to, to get position because they want to work. And then at the appointed hour, the foreman comes out, and he's, he's got a pile of coins in his hand. And if you get a coin, you get to work. And he starts to hand them out. He starts to hand them out. And, and finally, he's, he's tired of the process, so he just throws them on the ground. And everybody goes scrambling to, to grab one of those coins because if they get a coin, they get to work. But those who, who don't get their hands on a coin, those who are not fortunate enough to be chosen, those who are not fortunate enough to, to get a coin, they, they go away empty-handed for the day. They don't work. They don't eat. Their children aren't fed that day. And that's the way we sometimes think election works. We think that everybody has scrambled around the throne of God's grace, and they all want in. They all, they all want to be saved. But yet God is only choosing a few, and the rest are sent away empty. But as Sam was saying to the kids, we, we need to understand that that's not the way that election works. In truth, if I may use that same image of the, of the dock, in truth, no one shows up. No one shows up to work. The foreman doesn't uh, choose a few of the many gathered, but rather he has to go out into the alleyways and the byways and the slums to compel people to come in. Because left to, their, uh, left to themselves, no one comes. 
And that's the difference. That's, that's why the, the doctrine of election can be good news. It's not that God is choosing a few among the many who are scrambling to get in. It's that God is going and saving for himself people who were not even seeking him. The problem with the way that we normally think about election is that it does not account for our true condition in Adam. Scripture teaches that in and of themselves, no one seeks God. No one calls upon the name of the Lord. By nature, we are actually hostile towards him. By nature, we are at enmity with him. By nature, we are his enemies, lovers of darkness. What we want is a genie. There is in us a desire for, for one who is powerful, for one who can do what we cannot do for ourselves. But, but whilst many are, are seeking such a, a God, a genie, they are not seeking the Lord. They are not seeking the one who would be their king. They want to be served. They don't want to serve. And this is the reason that God effectually calls to himself those whom he would Save. This is the reason that he compels them to come in. He is not content merely to offer salvation to sinners. He is committed to saving sinners. If he merely offered, no one would be saved, and God will not have that. And so he does more than offer. He saves. He gives ears to hear. He gives eyes to see. He gives a mind to understand and a heart to believe the good news concerning his son. He gives a will to obey. He makes those who were dead in their sins alive together with Christ. This is the gospel. This is the heart of election. It is God saving sinners. God saying, let there be light in the heart of a sinner was walking in darkness. And apart from such effectual grace, there is no salvation at all. Of course, there are some. There are some who recognize that, that no sinner left to himself will ever receive and rest upon Jesus, but, but, who will, uh, but they still reject this idea of effectual grace. And instead, they teach what's known as, as prevenient grace. And that may be a term you, you've heard before, maybe, maybe not, but it just means a grace that comes before. And, and the idea of prevenient grace is that God gives sinners enough grace to respond to the gospel. They recognize that left to themselves, they can't respond. They, they need God's grace. And so the, the doctrine of provenient grace says that, that God just gives enough grace to respond to everyone. He doesn't compel them. This grace isn't effectual. It makes faith possible. It doesn't make faith. And those who believe this doctrine, this idea of provenient grace, believe that God, as I said, gives this grace to everyone because that seems more fair. He gives everyone the same chance. It levels the playing field. But again, the problem with this is that it means that God does not and cannot save sinners. If you think about it, if God has already given his grace to everyone, and he's given them enough grace to respond, and now it's up to them, then God's already done everything he can do to save everyone. He's given them enough grace to respond. The ball's now in their court. 
And this means that it would at least be possible that no one would, would be saved because everyone could, in theory, reject God's offer. God cannot guarantee or, or fully accomplish the salvation of even one person. And while that might be fair, at least from our perspective, it's certainly not the way Scripture speaks. This is not the way that God talks about, uh, the, or the scriptures speak about, about God or the salvation that is made available uh, to us in Jesus Christ because it's more than made available. God doesn't just offer, he saves sinners. Jesus came into the world to lead many sons to glory. And so this idea of provenient grace, while it, while it seems to satisfy our desire for, for fairness, it is simply not what the scriptures teach. It must be that God appoints some to eternal life because it is God who saves sinners. And if God is saving sinners more, more than merely making salvation available to them, uh, then he must decide whom he saves. This is what the scriptures teach. And, and at the end of the day, hopefully we begin, can begin to see that, that while we, we may not fully understand what is going on here, we, we can see that it's good news because without this, without the election of sinners, there is no salvation. God cannot merely offer. He must save. But of course, this then brings us to our second objection if God is saving sinners and not merely offering salvation, then, then it doesn't seem loving for him not to save everyone. And this, in my mind at least, is an even harder uh, objection. Some try to avoid the, the conclusion that God is unloving by, by suggesting that God has done the best he could. He's done everything that he could to, to save sinners. You can think of the image of that, that child who's, who's standing on the beach after the storm and he's tossing the, the starfish back into the ocean. You, you've seen that, right? It shows up on motivational posters, right? And, and you're supposed to, to pass the, chuck the starfish back into the ocean and people will say, well, you can't save them all. And he says, I know, but I can save this one. And that little child is going to do the best he can. Now, if you think that's the way the scriptures speak about God, you need to read the Bible more closely, that is not how the God of the Bible is revealed. He's not like a child doing the best he can. But rather, he is the Almighty. He is the God who does whatever he pleases. He is the all-powerful maker of heaven and earth. It cannot be that his decision to, to save the elect is, is a function of his limited power. And even if that were true, it wouldn't be good news. A God of limited power can't fully be trusted. He, he may do the best he can, but, but there's no guarantee that he will be able to keep his promises. If, if you are a parent who's ever had to make a promise to your child, you, you know this dilemma, do you not? You want to promise your child, but, but in your adult minds, you know there are so many factors that you don't actually control. Sarah and I were watching a, a show recently, and the, the dad was, was going off to war. And he, he promised his daughter that he would come back. And of course, everyone knows that he doesn't have the power to keep that promise. Surely he will do the best he can. He will try to stay alive. And because the, uh, the writers of the script want him to come home, he, he will. But in the real world, he doesn't have the power to keep that promise. 
So is that really how we want to think about God? Someone who, who intends to do the best he can, but doesn't really have the power to keep his promises? Certainly not. Certainly this is not the God of the Bible. A God of, of limited power is not the God in whom we believe. But if God is not limited in power, does that mean that we are, are forced to believe that he is limited in love? Again, this will not do. It is not the way the scriptures speak. But on the contrary, the Bible tells us that God is love. We cannot say that God is limited in love. He is the, he is the very expression of love. He is perfect love. Known by his steadfast faithfulness, his, his loving kindness. And so we, we have to be able to, to hold together the idea that, that God is perfect love and that God is a God who appoints some to eternal life. Now that being said, here's where I'm going to disappoint you. I must admit that I do not know how. The election of some fits with the expression of, of God's perfect love. Let me say that again. I don't know. I don't know how the election of some fits with God's perfect love. And, and maybe you've wrestled with that and you've heard a lot of answers that have, that have disappointed you. And, if, and if, if that's true of you, I want you to know those answers disappoint me too. I, I can't make sense of it. I've never been able to, to make sense of it. If I were God, I would do things differently. But the question is, will I acknowledge the reality that I'm not God? The question is whether or not I am willing to bow before the one who has revealed himself most perfectly in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Will I lean on my own understanding? Or will I in all my ways acknowledge him? Will I believe that my brain is the final arbiter of good and evil, or will I honor God as God? That's the question. That's the question. It shouldn't surprise us that we cannot comprehend him. It shouldn't surprise us that, that we cannot make perfect sense of, of who he is or of his ways in the world. And, and in reality, when we begin to see that he is God and we are not, it actually sets us free to acknowledge that the, the mystery goes both ways. Yes, I, I struggle to understand why an all-loving God would not elect all to eternal life, but at the same time, I, I struggle to understand why God would, would choose to save any. Remember, we are by nature God's enemies. We are by nature objects of his holy wrath, justly condemned as, as rebels and, and traitors. Why would God save us? I don't know the answer. I don't know why he doesn't save all. I don't know why he saves any. But I do know this. He so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not simply to make salvation available, but to save truly and 
fully. In love, he effectually calls those whom he has chosen for himself out of darkness into light, out of death into life. I know that's not an answer, and I I warned you ahead of time. I don't know the mind of God. I I know that his thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are, are not my ways. But I know this, that God's love is clearly seen in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And while I cannot comprehend how that love is worked out in space and time, I cannot deny that God has loved us enough to send forth his son as the sacrifice for our sins, that we who were hostile in mind towards him might be subdued and reconciled to him through faith. That is the wonder of God's love for sinners. I do not comprehend it. I I cannot fully grasp it. I cannot work out all the details. But I see God's love for sinners in the gift of his son. That then brings me to the third objection, and I'm running low on time here, so let me move quickly. The third objection is simply this, that that God's effectual calling of the elect compromises or or, or contradicts our humanity. It it undermines our, our agency and therefore reduces us to puppets. And again, Here we are in the realm of mystery. Here again we are in the realm of of what is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But but understand this, that, that in all of life God is sovereign. Over every aspect of our lives, He rules. Our confession says He rules all of the actions of all of His creatures all the time. That is the extent of God's sovereignty. And yet, the Scriptures teach that even with this sovereign God, Ruling over all of his creatures. He has given to us real agency. He has given to us real freedom. He he has given to us the ability to make real choices that that matter. And and we do not know how those pieces fit together. We we can only think of sovereignty in in sort of these anthropomorphic terms of, of, of God controlling or forcing something. When we don't control something, we're not sovereign over it. But it is not so with God because he is not like us. God's sovereignty does not compromise or or contradict the agency of his creatures. And and we don't know how that works, but we know it's true because it's what the scriptures teach again and again and again. And we take God at his word. And if God is sovereign over all of the actions of all of his creatures all the time, it means that he is sovereign even in salvation. And so his sovereignty and salvation no more contradicts our agency than his sovereignty anywhere else in life. And what does that mean? It means that, yes, God elects to save some, but those who are elect must still respond. Sometimes those who, who, who believe in election will, will reject the language that, that sinners must decide. We don't make decisions for Christ. He decides to choose us. You've probably heard that before. It's wrong. You must decide for Christ. You must choose to follow him. You must choose to receive and and rest upon him. Yes, it is true that you cannot do that in yourself, but it is also true that if you do not do that, you will not be saved. And I cannot fully articulate how those two pieces fit together, but God is absolutely sovereign, even in salvation, and we are responsible moral agents. 
And we will only be saved if we receive and rest upon his Son. Those who believe will not perish but have eternal life. This is the reality. This is the reality of God's effectual calling of the elect. It's not unfair because Christ's death is sufficient for all. It's not unloving because while we do not fully see the, uh, the picture, we, we see God's love fully on display in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And it does not reduce us to puppets because while God is sovereign, his sovereignty does not contradict or undermine our agency as those who have been given the freedom to choose by our creator. But more than this, more than just answering these objections, I I want you to see the full glory of God's grace here. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones that, that Sam talked about. What was the question he was asked? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered as only he could. Lord, you know. Can these bones live? Yes. But only if God speaks an effectual word. Or think of Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. Can he come forth? Yes. But only if Jesus speaks an effectual word. That is our condition in Adam. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace. Grace doesn't just offer us salvation. It has saved us from death. It has made us alive. It it has brought us into the kingdom of light. Admittedly, there is much that we do not understand, but why should that surprise us? God is God, and if we understood him, he would not be. The God that you fully understand is not the God revealed in the scriptures. We are his creatures. We do not comprehend him, but let us not focus on what we cannot see. Rather, let us set our minds and our hearts on what has been revealed. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel that the the Gentiles received with joy from the mouth of Paul. May we learn to do the same. May we learn to humbly set aside our objections and simply receive the revealed word of God, for it is truly and fully good news. God does not merely make salvation possible. He saves sinners. And because he does, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now, humbly asking that you would humble us and that you would give us the grace to receive your gospel as the beautiful gospel that it is. Father, give us the the grace to, to receive the gift of salvation as good news. Good news for sinners who were without hope except in your sovereign mercy. Father God, let this gospel put down deep roots in our heart and let it bring forth abundant fruit in our lives. To the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.